You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty Father, we pray that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit. For the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen. You may be seated. My uh, family travels to North Carolina and South Carolina about six or seven times a year. And as is the case with many trips that originate in the state of Alabama, if you're going to get anywhere, you got to go through Atlanta. And I want to tell you about my least favorite stretch of road in the entire world. And if you uh, can identify with this, I invite you to nod your head. It's called Connector. And it's where I-85 and I-75 come together in downtown Atlanta. And it's a phenomenon. It's simultaneously gridlock meets the Talladega 500. (laughs) You cannot move. You literally cannot move. And yet, everyone is driving like the late Dale Earnhardt. And so the goal and the mission is to make it across six lanes of traffic to get to the blessed HOV lane, where there's a little reprieve. But true relief comes when I-85 and I-75 go their separate ways, and around the time you get to the Lindbergh Avenue exit, there is this sensation that always comes over me. I feel my hands start to loosen on the steering wheel, and I feel this pain in my fingers and my palms and my wrists because I have been clinging to the steering wheel with all my strength for 20 straight minutes. It's what I would call a clench-fisted response to connector traffic. On John 6, we have a story that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the story of Jesus feeding 5,000. A crowd of people have seen Jesus perform miraculous works. They've heard him teach, and they have followed him into the countryside Now Jesus teaches and he performs this new miracle. And in John 6, we can see two different responses to the person and the work of Jesus. There is the clenched-fisted response, and there is the open-handed response. The clenched-fisted response has an agenda. It wants control of the situation. And the open-handed response follows Jesus wherever he goes, offers Jesus whatever it has, and receives from Jesus the grace of life. And so we can all probably identify with living in a clenched-fisted way versus an open-handed way. There is the stress and the grind and the anxiety of the clenched-fisted life, and there is the peace and the rest of an open-handed life with the Lord. So today we will look at the clenched-fisted life versus the open-handed life with the hope that by the grace of God that we can receive and enjoy the life and the rest of the gospel. So first, the clench-fisted life. In John, in verse 2, all of the thousands of people who were following Jesus, they had seen him do miraculous works of healing. They'd heard him teach. And so they knew that there was something special and supernatural about Jesus. But we can observe a clenched-fisted response to the things that he did. first example of this would be Philip. Jesus asked, how are we going to feed all of these people? And Philip says, eight months of salary wouldn't put a dent in feeding this crowd. 
We don't want to give Philip too hard of a time. Jesus asked a practical question. Philip is giving a practical response. But let's keep in mind that Philip had seen Jesus do dozens and dozens of miraculous works. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that Jesus was supernatural. The clenched-fisted life thinks in terms of human capability. It thinks in terms of the power within. And in the clenched-fisted life, we muscle our way through life, exerting the power within. And that is why it is such an exhausting manner of life. Now, the second example of the clenched-fisted life can be seen in verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It was Passover season. Commentator Colin Cruz said that nationalistic fervor was in the air. Uh, based on a prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, the Jews were expecting a great prophet to come into the world and do greater things than even Moses had done. And so as Moses had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they were expecting the great prophet to come and deliver them from the oppression of the Roman government. Furthermore, in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha, the successor of Elijah, and one of the greatest prophets of Israel, he had taken 20 loaves of bread and had turned it into enough to feed 100 people. We'll compare this to Jesus, who's taken less food and now is feeding over 5,000 people. To the Jews, Jesus fit the mold. This is our guy. He can get us what we want. He can deliver us from the Romans. You may have heard it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. On my worst days, I believe that God loves me and that Cameron has a wonderful plan for Cameron's life. Well, these guys take it a step farther. They believe God loves us and we have a wonderful plan for God's life in the person of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, um, I spoke at a, a recovery um, addiction shelter for homeless men in Greenville, South Carolina. And for the entirety of my 20-minute sermon, there was a young man sitting 10 feet in front of me who shook his head in disagreement through the entire sermon. But I want you to know that did nothing for my confidence or my spirit during the sermon. So afterwards, I went up to him and I kind of lightly said, you know, man, you were, you were not buying what I was selling. Like, tell me more about that. And he said, you know, there are some things that God believes that I agree with. But there are some things that God believes that I don't agree with. I don't believe. And so I was tempted to ask him, so you believe if you could sit down with God, you could teach him a thing or two. But I didn't say it fortunately, because it would have been too self-indicting and too self-incriminating, because that's the mentality that I live with too. Arrogance, control, and self-reliance, those are the bedrocks of the clenched-fisted life Many days, just like the crowd in John chapter 6, we sit there before God and we say, Jesus, you are special. You are something special. But let me tell you, I got plans. I got plans for my life, for my finances, for my career, for my spouse, for my children, for my grandchildren. I got plans for my colleagues and for my kids' soccer coach. And Jesus, if you'll just get on board with my plans— Everyone 
is going to be happy. I want you to know that God will not participate in this. He will not participate in this. Notice, as the people move to control Jesus, if they, as they move to make him king by force, Jesus withdraws. He sidesteps the crowd. He knows that us being in control is a recipe for self-destruction. He loves us too much to get on board with our agenda above his own. That's the essence of the clenched-fisted life. It's an attempt to knock Jesus off of his throne so that we can exert maximum control over our lives. And as we tighten our grip on our lives, the pain in our fingers and our hands and our wrists, it seeps in to our emotions and into our relationships and into our minds. And that pain feels like fear and anxiety and hurrying and busyness and resentment and conflict. And when you feel stress and burden, there is a good chance that the posture of your heart is a clench-fisted posture. When you feel that stress and burden, like you have to cultivate the perfect resume for college or for work, when you feel that pressure, like you have to pack so much into your days, when you feel that anxiety after reading article after article after article about the decay of society, when you feel that anxiety, these are indicators that you are probably living in a clenched fist life in those moments. And the fruit of a clenched fist life is misery. It's misery in your inner life, and it's misery in your relationships. But there is another way, and that takes us to our second point, the open-handed life. The second response that we observe in John 6 takes on a totally different feel. It is a feel of submission and of receiving. Here is the crowd that has seen Jesus do miraculous signs of healing. They've heard him preach. They've seen him turn bread into enough to feed thousands. And we can see three characteristics of the open-handed life. The first is that people follow him. They give up control. Now, the people did not know where Jesus was going. They certainly didn't have a plan because they didn't have any food, and that kind of creates the whole problem of John 6. But they know that Jesus is supernatural. They know that he is good. And so they give up control and they follow him wherever he's going. Secondly, we see submission to Jesus. Now, John's account is the only of the four accounts of this story where we see that it is a child who gives and supplies the food that Jesus uses to feed the crowd. Children were seen as marginal and weak in this society. We don't know anything about the transaction of the boy handing over the food, but we do know that he submitted what he had to the control and to the discretion of Christ. And secondly, we see that the crowd submits to Jesus as well. Jesus tells them to get in line and to sit down, and the people sit. They enter into a position of submission. And the third characteristic that we see is a posture of receiving. The people sit and they wait for their food. They were hungry. There was no mad rush to the front. There was no mob. The people wait for Jesus to come to them and to supply their needs. This is the simple life that Jesus calls us to. This is the simple life that the gospel affords for us. 
that we give up control to Jesus, that we submit to him, we receive his grace and his blessing, and we live out of this. And this simplicity is a massive relief, especially in a world where we all are running 100 miles per hour and we feel like we're being pulled in a thousand different directions. Sit before Jesus. Open your hands. Receive his grace and his blessing. Now, the open-handed life is easier said than done. Uh, Opening our lives to anyone, even God, makes us vulnerable. And boy, it just feels so natural and secure to have our hands just like this. There are two things that we see in John 6 that enable us to open up our lives and our hands and our hearts to Christ. And the first is the promise. Notice in this text that the people who follow Jesus to the mountain, they received their fill. Jesus came to them. He supplied an abundance for their physical needs. And for us, the promise of the open-handed life is that the Lord feeds our heart. He feeds our heart with the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ himself, the only thing that can truly satisfy our soul. And secondly, the ultimate assurance that enables us to open our hands is the insurance of the open hands of Jesus Christ himself. You and I, I have to admit, would be really tempted to become king with the crowd. If the crowd wanted me to be king, I'd take it in New York second. I couldn't resist the glory of man, but not Jesus. Jesus' hands, his life, his heart are open to the will of God the Father. And it was not the will of God the Father for Jesus to be an earthly king. It was the will of God the Father for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus, with open hands before the Father, he is taken to the mountain, and then he is taken to Jerusalem, and ultimately he is taken to the cross where he opens his hands to the nails. He dies for our transgressions, and he atones for our sins. And because of the open hands of Jesus. You can open your heart, you can open your life to God the Father because you know that your sins are forgiven. You know that you are accepted and loved unconditionally and you know that you are regarded with affection and fondness because of the death of Jesus. As we pray, I encourage you to open your hands to receive God's blessing. Father God, You know our lives, you know our hearts, you know our needs. And I pray here and now through Christ and by the Holy Spirit that you would give us the wisdom, the grace, the healing, the comfort, and the direction that we all need for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.